and welcome to episode 231 of the Waters Waveland podcast. I'm your host, Weishan, and as usual, I've got my co-host, Tony, with me here today. Hey, T, how's it going? It is fantastic because I am now, let's see here, it's 11.56 p.m. or it's 11.50 p.m. God, I wish I could do math, but basically I'm just exactly two full days away from going on a two-week vacation, so I am very excited about that, <laughs> so... Yeah, I've I've I'm not like I I I've I've always hated Brits. Like, well, just full stop. I've always hated Brits. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, put it out working, there. <laughs> just working for a British company for so many years. Now, granted, we're technically a French company, but still, our headquarters are in Britain, and our our main bosses and everybody are, are in uh, London. But I always hated like as an American, like. I would take a week's vacation. Even then, I would work during the week and stuff like that. Yeah, it's like it's just kind of this American psyche that you have. Brits will be like, all right, I'm going to be out from Monday until about January 2023, and I have no access to email. Don't contact me or anything. And I was always like, what a bunch of ass. You know, let's go away on these <laughs> vacations and everything. But go away for like two weeks, three weeks. I'm like, that's just selfish. That's just, you know, it's, it's over the top. I'm like, you know what, guys? I'm taking two weeks off, and I'm not checking my email. I'm not doing anything. Y'all on your own. So I got I got my vaccine shot. I went down. Uh, <laughs> go in. I swear to God, this is just a funny little aside. So I sit down at the chair, and I have this incredibly talkative lady that's giving me the shot. And right across from me, there's another chair where somebody else getting their shot. Three separate people got their shot before because she just wanted to chat me up. And she's asking me, like, have you ever had a reaction? I was like, no, I don't get reactions to shots. She's like, you had a tetanus shot? I was like, yeah, tetanus, didn't get a reaction. She's like, this is going to knock you out. I was knocked out for three days. My arm was killing me, my whole left side. I would have went to the hospital if I didn't know. And she's just going on and on. As she's about to give me the shot, telling me about this horrible pain that I'm going to be in for. But I was like, the, the Malakian gene. Like I got COVID in March last year and you know, I just, I had a, a, a slight cough is basically what I had. Um, and shots have never, so I got the shot, no illness, no nothing stronger, strong, like bull. Um, <laughs> but a lot of people I don't have had you know, bad adverse, not adverse reactions, just, you know, sore arms, fever you know feeling nauseous stuff like that but yeah. get your shots basically is uh is, is what i'm saying like uh <laughs> we, we Shad and i were laughing about uh the shots for shots yeah yeah in new orleans right yeah where exactly is new orleans i know i, I shouldn't be asking louisiana it's on uh the gulf of mexico to the west of uh, florida to the east of uh texas okay you lost me there but yeah. anyway <laughs> It's like new. It's it's pretty cool though. New Orleans bars and restaurants, they are offering shots for shots. So like you get a you get a vaccine and drinks are on them. Isn't that amazing? And honestly, I, I should have done that. That that would I would have dealt with uh, somebody talking to me. For I'm sure. Minutes. I'm sure there's some in New York that do that. Listen, man. I don't know. All I know is that yeah. I was just like, God, you're making me sick. Like, just give me the shot. Stop talking to me. But. <laughs> I'm just very not three friendly. People, three people got vaccinated before you in the time that you were sitting in that yeah. chair. Like, people don't get this. Like, my life is talking to people all the time. It's, you know, <laughs> talking to coworkers, but it's also just my job is to interview people. Once I'm done with work, I don't want to talk to people. Like, I'm the old guy sitting at a bar that's just, like, 
just looking angry so that you don't bartenders don't come up and talk to me unless they really know me you know it's like it's just just leave me alone just leave me alone anyway Basically, tony is saying that he's uh not sociable at all um, but, <laughs> but i am vaccinated i'm gonna head down to uh virginia and then uh into raleigh north carolina i haven't seen my folks for two years almost almost two years so this is uh, i'm very excited so yes two-week vacation y'all are on your own who do we got today, though, Wei Shen? <laughs> we'll, we'll, don't worry, we'll still call you and say that everything is going to shit, Tony. You got to save us now. <laughs> I told I told Joanne, I go, listen, you can't screw this up. It's impossible to screw it up because oh, why did you she, tell her I was that? like, the only way they could screw this up is if you publish a story that gets a suit out of existence, like Gawker with uh, the Peter Thiel uh, thing. So uh, just don't do that. Avoid that, and we'll be okay. <laughs> No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> so you're right, Tony. We actually have a guest on for this week. Uh, I spoke with Robert Wigley. He's currently the chairman at UK Finance. And in his spare time, uh, it's one of his passions. He backs young entrepreneurs in the tech business. Um, he spent many years in finance, was formerly EMEA chairman at Merrill Lynch and also a board member at the Bank of England. But I brought him on specifically to talk about a book that he wrote and published earlier this year called Born Digital, uh, which I thought was really interesting, um, talking about, oh, well, he, he wrote about the uh, Generation Z. So how their whole psyche and everything, and he spent a lot of time actually meeting up with the young people to write this book. So uh, yeah, uh, for, so, for this podcast, actually, we talk about talent specifically and how uh, banks and asset managers um, have to maybe switch up their hiring policies. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, it, uh, I look forward to listening to it while I'm on vacation. It sounds interesting. And I'll see you next week. <laughs> Catch you later. Bye. Okay, and now we're joined by Bob Wigley. Um, hi, Bob. How are you? I'm really well. How are you? Thank you for having me. Um, good, good to have you here. Uh, and I just, just want to give a little rundown about, uh, introduce you a little bit. So you've spent a couple of years in, not a couple, um, quite a few years in finance and you were formerly, you know, the, yeah. <laughs> you were formerly EMEA chairman at Merrill Lynch and also a board member at the Bank of England. Uh, but now you've, uh, you've taken over as a chairman at UK finance, where you back young entrepreneurs in tech businesses. And just this March, actually, you, uh, also published a book called, a uh, bond Digital. So maybe if you could give our uh, our listeners a little bit of an overview of um, you know how you got here and also like the the reason for why you decided to publish to write and publish this book. Yeah, just just to clarify, UK Finance um, is a trade body that represents the UK financial services industry. Uh, it's in the rest of my life that I back young entrepreneurs. That's a sort of private to the private part of my life, and I've got six or seven businesses at the moment where I'm backing youngsters. Uh, to try and help their businesses grow. Um, so why did I write the book? Well, actually watching my own three adolescent children growing up with technology, watching the way it affected the development of their personalities, the way they see the world, and I think the very different way they use technology from the way my generation did. And then in the course of looking for new businesses to back, I decided a couple of years ago to meet a new Generation Z entrepreneur every day or every business day for two years. I've met over 200 and it was really those meetings that cemented my view about how different Gen Z is from my generation. And that's really trying to capture that, the, the essence of that difference, and particularly as it relates to technology, is what is what the book is about. 
Okay, if you were to say it in one sentence, I mean, just coming from your uh, your your generation versus Gen Z, uh, how would you put it? I couldn't, honestly. Uh, 350 pages and 515 references. Uh, I couldn't put it in a sentence. What, I, what I'm talking about bluntly is the good and the bad of technology as it affects Gen Z. Yeah. Uh, the, the good is the transformation it's brought, brought to our lives, whether it be the way we educate ourselves, the way we entertain ourselves, uh, the way we shop, the way we politic, the way we enter into religion, all of those things, you know, massive benefits, but at what cost? And I think I, I, I term it the distraction crisis. I think we are permanently distracted by our devices and the apps on them. Uh, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not so good. So what the book tries to explore is that balance between the good and the bad. Okay. Well, I really wanted to get you on the uh, to the podcast actually to talk about uh, talent and how uh, uh, the banks and asset managers are in you know in the capital markets and wholesale financial space is actually approaching this issue because clearly um, you know getting new talent in is is not the same as we you know they did 20 years ago or, or even or even 10 years ago um, you know they have to um, you know adapt to the new behaviors and the new demands of well Gen Z so uh, in your book I, I quite like the the end the last two sections, the last few sections of your book, actually, and one talks about purpose and another one talks about um, digital, uh, which is a physical digital space. Um, so let's talk about purpose first. You know, purpose has always been an important aspect of one's job. Uh, and it's not not only to Gen Z, but how would you say it's different from, uh, let's say, compared to uh, when you first entered a job market versus, I guess, my time <laughs> to when I first yeah. entered a job market? Yeah. So I think it's it's changed dramatically. I think in my lifetime we we've seen the 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 growth of what what used to be called the corporate social responsibility kind of uh, you know imperative. Mm. And um, so when I started work, you know, we wanted to work for big profitable companies with famous brand names. We you know we thought we'd go there for five to ten years, progress through the ranks. Right? Um, youngsters look at it very differently. Um, what they want to do is work for a company that, that does something useful, is the way I put it. Um, it's, it's fine if the company makes profit for its shareholders, but it needs to be serving some societal purpose as well. And so uh, in the corporate social responsibility world, we've gone through a number of different names, but where we've ended up is with this word purpose. And so my chapter in the book is called Purposes, Not Businesses, because every single one of the young entrepreneurs I met in that two-year period either came with a social enterprise, so not a business as I would understand it, it's something that is probably first of all serving a societal purpose and maybe making some money as well uh, rather than the other way around, uh, or when they were talking about the kinds of companies they wanted to work for, uh, it was very important to them that that company was doing something to, to serve a societal need. Now, you say why is that? Well, I think um, that my generation is leaving uh, that generation a pretty miserable um, set of cards, whether it be kind of overhang from the from the last global financial crisis, whether it be a continuing global war on terror, uh, whether it be um, you know COVID debt, which we've just loaded onto the world's economy, um, or whether it be a damaged planet. And and I think so. So you've all grown up listening to us talk about these issues, um, uh, and I think. Um, that's why Generation Z uh, wants to resolve the problems that we're we are presenting them, and they and they think that the capitalist model, which in a sense has delivered this history, is broken, um, and that going forward it can only work if it if it does if it both makes money but also solves societal issues. So that's that's what I think it's all about. 
Okay. So then, I mean, could you give us some examples of like how firms, uh, let's say, you know, the likes of, you know, Goldman Sachs or even you know, Merrill Lynch or the Black Rocks of this world, uh, how are they changing? I mean, first of all, what is giving them the impetus to change uh, in terms of maybe their uh, their hiring um, uh, processes or or the way that they deal with with existing employees so that they can you know show uh, potential new employees uh, new Gen Z employees that they uh, you know are someone good to work for. So so I think um, a part of purpose is sustainability. Um, and the other thing that one has to bring in here is inclusivity. So if there are, if there are two sort of driving values for the way uh, youngsters look at companies and potential employers, these are the two things that they're most focused on, sustainability and inclusivity. Um, so what will Goldman Sachs be doing, or indeed what will all the banks be doing, um, they will be trying to make the claim that they are an inclusive company um, and that their, their, their policies, recruitment, uh, training, uh, promotion, pay, all of their policies uh, are truly inclusive. Um, and um, and then the second thing they'll be trying to do is to demonstrate that the company is doing something useful. Now, in the context of a bank, what is that? Well, it is using Janet and John English to explain what banks do. If I talk to you about maturity transformation, you probably glaze over pretty quickly, which, of course, is the fundamental um, you know, purpose of a bank. Um, but if I talk to you about um, helping a family buy its first home or um, helping um, a youngster start a small business by lending in, lending them money for the first working capital loan, um, that's the purpose of the financial services industry. And so I think a lot of time is going into putting into you know plain English the functions that we perform for society, um, you know, in the moments that matter in your life. So that's very easy to see from the uh, the retail and perhaps maybe a little bit of the uh, business banking side of the of the bank, but when it comes to like the corporate and institutional side, how how does that differ? Uh, I don't think it does because you know when you're when you're trading in derivatives, you're you are still supporting business. Uh, it, you know most most trading activity in banks has some underlying fundamental business that it's supporting, whether it be helping a company hedge its exposure to currency fluctuation or commodity prices. You know, you, you may be building more complex derivatives off the back of these these transactions, but ultimately there is a primary transaction which gives rise. I mean, that the word derivative obviously literally means that it comes from something and it comes from a primary transaction that's actually a real business transaction. So I don't think it's any different. Okay. Okay. So then, when when uh, companies like yeah, like Goldman Sachs and BlackRock, you know, when they, uh, you know, how how can they, how how do you actually see them putting where putting actions where their mouth is, um, and yeah, is that correct? Yes, it, that is correct. Um, how and and you know, with the like for example with ESG, there's so much greenwashing out there, and mm. sometimes obviously it takes time for. Uh, the investor to actually see that okay this firm was just merely greenwashing or they're just in this they're just saying they're in into ESG for the sake of uh, you know saying that they're in ESG and you know trying to portray themselves as uh, as good so um you know how can firms actually uh do better in terms well, of you know proving I, I, yeah. 
Yes, I think the answer to that is that they they publicise in advance what it is that they are planning to do, which means, in effect, putting their ESG policies out there for people to scrutinise. Um, um, I'm talking about the kind of KPIs that they wish to be measured against, and so then reporting against those KPIs, and and you know, in black and white, black and white, in your uh, annual report and accounts or other you know financial reporting documents. Um, and I think the ESG departments of big institutional investors have got pretty good at, uh, at spotting either green or purpose washing when they see it. Um, so firms are absolutely on their mettle to not only say they're going to do the right thing, but actually do the right thing and then demonstrate how much of the right thing they've done um, with measured KPIs. And so I think that's what you have to do. And that's what people are doing. OK, OK. Mm, but some of those KPIs can be quite hard to meet, right? I mean, because let's say being in inclusive is, is one thing. Um, uh, I mean, that that does fit into like in the entire ESG umbrella. Um, and actually a lot of things fit, in, fit under there. But, um, you know, it, it can be quite hard to quantify. And some of, these, and some of these KPIs do take time. And, you know, what if they don't hit those KPIs in the, well, yeah, what if they don't hit those KPIs? What then? I mean, should should they go out and say to to uh, to future employees uh, and and also uh, the investors, you know, um, hey, we we kind of made a mistake here. This is how we're correcting it. I mean, what is sort of that that kind of? Uh, well, I, I yeah. think that's a bit like it's a bit like uh, comply or explain when it comes to policies. This is achieve or explain, right? If you've if you've set out what it is you're aiming to do and you've set out the KPIs you're trying to, to be measured by and, and, and the targets you're trying to achieve, if you don't achieve a particular target, you can always explain why that was. It may be that the business environment was different from how you envisaged. It may be it just proved more difficult to source loans that met a particular policy. I think you can explain that um, at least for one or two periods. And maybe it results in you changing your policy to make, you know, to, to uh to move in a different tack. So I think there are there are ways of dealing with that. And actually, as long as you're transparent and accurate, um, your investors should should be quite happy. OK, uh, OK, so your, your book actually highlights this concept of uh, digital workspaces. I mean, could you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, so that, that just really um, uh, means the combination of the physical and the digital. And, and what it what it recognizes is that for Generation Z, just as they don't see um, a difference between the on and offline world, it's all one world to them. Um, I, I think they're not going to see um, a physical boundary between the office uh, or work, if you like, and where they are. So, you know, whether they're working in their flat at home, whether they're on their, uh, you know, iPhone in uh, Costa having a cup of coffee, uh you know uh or, or listening to um some work related training in the gym uh or or they are actually in the office um as far as they're concerned they're working in all these situations and so that's why i call them digital working places i think it goes beyond that if we just leap, leap back to sustainability for a minute um uh i do think that um biophilic um, uh, workplaces are going to be a big feature of the future. So, so with youngsters' focus on the need to uh, to repair the planet and have regard to sustainability, so they will want to bring the planet into the office. Um, so, I think you're going to see many more biophilic workplaces where the physical boundary between the the interior and the exterior more blurred. Um, How does that work? Going, 
Um, it, it, it's to do with the use of uh, windows, light, actually having um, not just a yucca plant in the corner of your office, but having, <laughs> having, uh, no, but I mean, seriously, having, having living uh, plants in and around the structure of the building. And you, you are seeing this more and more if, you, if, you're, if you're in London. Um, and, and just going back to the, the fidgetal working place, um, I think this is about recognising that youngsters um, will work um, wherever they are when it's convenient to them, not necessarily specific hours when they happen to be in the office. And so your policy framework needs to think about how you cope with flexi time, remote working, um, paid time off, all those all those things, because youngsters are more interested in what I call uh, benefits, not salaries. They're, they're interested in a cool office environment, in a cool location, uh, and they want flexibility about how and when they work. And that's more important than, than, than a particular base salary number. Do you feel like you've missed out somehow because you, you spent so many years like kind of me, perhaps maybe sitting at a desk and, you know, not not, not being remote uh, and, and working from, let's say, your treadmill or like at Costa Coffee or some, some place yeah, like that? No, I don't feel that I missed out. I feel that um, I understand that when I was in the office, um, there was a um, an environment in which you interacted with colleagues. Um, there was a natural way of promoting teamwork. There was a natural way of uh, innovating with creativity because you were sitting around with other intelligent people trying to do you know a good job for your employer. Um, my concern is in this more blurred uh, environment, how you recreate that, you know, those kind of features, how you how you reinforce teamwork and you uh, facilitate creativity and innovation. But I do think that, um, you know, the software designers are creating tools to help us with those with those things, you know, things like Slack, um, you know, which is essentially a project management tool uh, is good in terms of developing uh, team working and cooperation. Um, and there are ideation tools, you know, VR and AR ideation tools um, for creativity. So um, it, it's not better or worse. It's just different. And technology will have a role to play in facilitating this new way of working. Okay, okay. I mean, that's interesting. I mean, you, as as you mentioned, uh, yeah, like recreating that maybe that teamwork or that team bond within your with your colleagues. It's, um, I, I mean, moving towards the remote working kind of experience. It def definitely has. Uh, it will take a toll, right? Because you're not seeing people face to face as as much as before, uh, and not interacting. You, you don't, I mean, body language always plays a huge part in like relationships, right? So. I mean, obviously, COVID has accelerated this movement to uh, digital workspaces. Um, but, you know, moving beyond that, how can, uh, I mean, using those tools does help. But, I mean, does it still come from, uh, you know, the manager's point of view, uh, the 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 message that they want to send down to their team members? And then from, like, let's say the, the top, the CEO, the managing director of a firm, how can they kind of convey that you know, look, you guys are important to us. We really value what you're doing at our firm. Uh, you know, continue doing the good work, for example. So the first thing to say is that one of the key criteria for joining a company is, is, for youngsters is whether that firm demonstrates that it is sufficiently technologically sophisticated, which means embracing this concept of the digital working place. So, and youngsters will, will sense that immediately from the application process, right? So, you know, if, if you're going to ask me to go onto a website, fill in a four page, you know, form 
rather than just simply allow me to upload my pre-prepared CV um, and then fill in some long questionnaire and it's different for every employer and it takes hours and then I get a two word kind of acknowledgement or or no, even worse, with no explanation, no feedback. You know, we're not going to be very impressed with that company, are we? Mm. So going forward, I think employers will need to be much more technology sophisticated. They will need to use video. They'll need to allow applicants to record snappy presentations of themselves. Um, and actually, they should want to because you learn a lot more from seeing someone and hearing them talk than you do from from simply reading a CV. Now, I can't tell you the number of hours that I've spent interviewing people for a whole hour when I've known after the second minute I wasn't remotely interested in hiring them. But from their CV, they look great. They walk in the room, you start talking, you just think, yeah, this is not going to work for me. But, but then you have to be polite and go through the whole hour because that person has made the effort to come for the interview. A video would would tell you that, I think, nine times out of ten. Much more efficient for the applicant, much more efficient and effective for the employer. So it starts with technological sophistication. Um, uh, then I think you, you, you get into things like um, how you communicate with your employees uh, and how you survey your employees, for example, uh, and how you appraise your employees. So, again, in the old days, we would have had um, you know, long memos coming around on, on email. We would have had, you know, employee staff survey forms that would gone around, be filled in and then be aggregated. Um, and, and the comms, again, you know, come around in big emails. Well, we don't want to, we don't want to read long emails. Well, again, what we want is a two minute video from the CEO telling us what's going on in our company. Much more efficient, actually, for the company, actually more effective, I think, in terms of conveying the culture and purpose of the organization and much more interesting for the employee. Similarly, in staff surveys, um, you know, we should be doing that digitally. We should be making it simple. We should be facilitating it via video whenever we can. So I think, you know, the whole way in which companies uh, convey um, instructions, policies, procedures, training, an appraisal to to and then ultimately seeking feedback from employees needs to be much more digital and more efficient. So in your research of, of uh, you know, uh, for the book or even even after that, um, could you do you have some examples of which companies uh, which uh, do you have any examples of companies that have done well, uh, you know, looking at this um, and which ones have uh, kind of slacked or lagged behind? Well, I can give you a couple of ones that have done well, which I um, uh, at different ends of the spectrum. So um, I think that um, uh, McDonald's use um, uh, uh, Snapchat to recruit their um, serving staff um, and they've coined the brilliant name Snapplications for the process, which sort of sums up that A, it's done through Snapchat, but B, it's quick, efficient, you know, it's not boring form filling. Um, so that, that sort of encompasses the whole concept. And I think snapplications actually is is a term we should use for, for the process for all employers going forward, not not necessarily that it needs to be on Snapchat. And then I think um, uh, Goldman Sachs actually have embraced TikTok um, to do short videos to explain what their company does to, to potential graduates and to lure them into the application process. So there are a couple of practical examples. There are many, but those are two particularly good ones. Um, and, and, and as far as um, people who are not so good, I don't want to single out any particular company, I'm afraid. But, but you know, we, we probably know who they are as well, don't we? 
<laughs> okay, but just on your point of uh, Goldman Sachs, I mean, he the the CEO actually, I mean, uh, got some flack uh, earlier this year actually because he said that um, remote working is an aberration. So, like, how does that fit into their their new hiring processes or new hiring policies versus what uh, he he calls uh, what he feels about work work from home? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't really want to comment on it, on any particular firm's uh, approach. I'm certainly not going to comment on, on those comments attributed to the, to the Goldman Sachs CEO. But but I think, um, for, you know, I think two things. Uh, every company has its own culture and is it, it is entirely up to that company if it decides that for its business model and its culture, it wants people in the office you know, primarily and solely in the office, that's entirely up to that firm. And if you don't want to do that, you don't have to go and work there. Um, but you've got to recognise that um, the way youngsters think, that may well not appeal to them. And that then, then could have implications for your for your hiring process and your, and your ultimate, uh, in inverted commas, inclusivity and what, you know, how you're going to attract, retain uh, and develop um, young talent. So, you know, I think it's a two-way street. The, the, the company can make its own choice, but then, then it will have to understand the implications for its, its actual hiring. So that, that's the way I look at it. What type of roles within the banking sector do you think that Gen Z would have, uh, would have more, uh, I guess, leeway or pool into creating this digital workspaces concept? Uh, and, and which ones and in which type of roles would you see that they probably need to, like, you know, follow uh, the traditional world of finance and, you know, be at their desk, uh, physical desk in an office, a majority of the work time. I don't think there are many jobs where you need to be at your desk a majority of the time, actually. I mean, what we've demonstrated during COVID is that even trading floors, you know, pretty much within within a week of, of, of lockdown starting, we're working, you know, perfectly well from home with with more support from technology. So, um, I, I think it's about a balance. I think you'll find that companies will go back to most jobs, uh, you know, um, having a balance between a period a period in the office and a period at home, maybe three days one way, two days the other or the other way around. Um, and then there'll be variants um, where people particularly want to work at home the whole time or want to work in the office the whole time. I think it's about flexibility uh, in the interest of the individual. And of course, there'll always be some jobs where I mean, you know, security guards, for example, obviously have to be on the premises, right? Um, you know, there, there are probably IT jobs where being physically present with the servers, you know, um, because there's there's some degree of human intervention in a, you know, in a in a in a um, in a in a digital world is necessary. So, um, although you can do a lot these days through remote diagnostics and and and, and remote uh, uh, remote development. Um, so there'll, there'll always be some jobs that need to be on, but th there are not many, actually. I think you'll find most jobs can be done largely um, from outside the premises. OK, so then um, I guess maybe as a last question, I mean, like, how, how should banks and asset managers kind of like start to think a bit more broadly and creatively in, in, their, in their, the way they are hiring, hiring policies and their employment structure? Uh, how they should manage that? Well, as I said, I think it's about recognising the values that Generation Z um, puts highly. Uh, and that will be, again, going back to this point about benefits, not salary. So, you know, is the office environment cool? Is it in a cool location? Uh, you know, do I, am I allowed to have a combination of being in the office, being out of the office, working 
uh, remotely, um, having flexi time. Uh, can I uh, be very flexible about when I take my holidays and how long they're for? Can I have paid time off? Can I access my salary at any point during the month, not just at the end of the month, you know, by way of payday loans organized by the company? Um, yeah, it's, it's about um, appealing to Generation Z's um, value system. That's that's how they're going to have to set themselves up if they want to attract, retain and develop this 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 new talent. Okay, just looking at your your children, who were the major source of inspiration for your book. I mean, when when they hit the, uh, I guess, the career world, when they start their careers, what would you, what would you like to see, you know, happen then? How, how would you like to see some of these big firms? I mean, whether they be whether they are in the banking world or in in uh, in other in other industries, how would you like to see um, firms kind of cater more towards? Um, towards them, yeah. I think it's, I don't think I've got anything new to say. I think it's all the things I've talked about. It is making the application process um, convenient, efficient, simple, and actually fun. We didn't talk about gamification in the application process, but I think mm -hmm. it is possible to make the application process fun. It just happens to be a bit sort of boring process. Um, it is about emphasizing your your policies around inclusivity and your purpose and your sustainability. Uh, it is around making sure you have the right kind of office environment. It is around um, thinking about how you communicate with your employees and and demonstrating the right degree of te technological sophistication from the very first time the youngster comes across you uh, on social media or YouTube. People actually research companies now before they apply to them on social media. So you better make sure your social media representation reflects the way you want to portray your your policies and your degree of technological sophistication because it will be a giveaway. Okay, so okay, maybe as a last, last question, <laughs> um, is, have there been any new games or any new um, fun things that you've taken up during the last year? I mean, as a result of your children? Um, I wouldn't know. I don't think I, I'm not. I'm afraid I'm not a gamer. Um, probably the, the only thing that I've done that's fun is borrow my son's gaming headphones, which flash when I use them, which seems to cause my <laughs> colleague, colleagues a lot of amusement. Um, so they, I think they think I'm a closet gamer, but I'm actually not. <laughs> OK, cool. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Bob. I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to do so. And uh, we'll speak again soon. Pleasure. Thanks for having me.